Well, let's get started. This is a class I've been both looking forward to and dreading teaching for a long time because when we teach Genesis 1, that means we're committed, we're locked in, we're going to teach the entire book of Genesis. So that's a, uh, even though I've taught Genesis many times, it's, it's, a, it's a daunting challenge for me personally. Maybe that's why I had two introduc- introduction to the Old Testament classes that came before this one because I wasn't ready to dive in yet. Uh, the, the first introductory class talked about why the Old Testament is so important. One of the great passions in my life has been to open the eyes of Christians to the importance of the Old Testament. This is something I devoted my life to about 30 years ago, and uh, I'm still very, very passionate about that. I think this is so important. It's been such a help to me personally in my own walk, and I really want to help, help other Christians everywhere in the same way, in any way that I possibly can. First introductory lesson, we talked about why it's so important for Christians today to study the Old Testament, and mentioned eight reasons in the lesson, some of them really understanding the character of God, who he really is, not who we want him to be, to understand prophecies about Jesus, to get the background for the Old Testament, and also to see some really great examples that we can learn from and annotate or, or avoid in our own lives. So it was the introductory lesson, the first introductory, then we had a second introductory lesson, which was just taking an example of one day in the Bible that was the day that God came down on Mount Sinai to see how we can draw these, these various lessons out of just looking at one extremely significant day in history. Amen. Book of Genesis is the foundation for everything else in the Bible. That's why it's so important for us to, to really know the book of Genesis well. I've heard the Bible described as a story in three parts. The first part is God creates man, which is Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The second part is man rebels against God, which is Genesis chapter 3. And the third part is God working with man to redeem mankind, which is Genesis chapter 4 through Revelation 22. That takes a little more time. So we're, gonna, we're going to start off with the first part of that, with, with God creating man and, and the world. Concepts that are introduced in the book of Genesis, there are so many concepts that run throughout the scriptures that are introduced in Genesis. I'll give you an idea of some, some of the ones that come to mind immediately. Who God is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is revealed in Genesis the creation of the universe and mankind, the nature of man being body and spirit, tendencies toward good and evil, Satan, introduction to Satan, temptation and sin, foreshadowing of the final judgment of the whole world, the idea of free choice and free will versus predestination, what it means to be living by faith, Different styles of prophecy, the allegorical Eastern style versus the more linear Western style prophecy. We see them both in Genesis. Foreshadowings of things like the kingdom of God, baptism, crucifixion of Jesus, the priesthood of Jesus, and the resurrection. These things are all introduced in the book of Genesis. Significance of marriage, relationships between men and women. That's in Genesis. 
And we're introduced to some people who are very important and who are mentioned in the New Testament. I think of Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Enoch, Methuselah, Noah. I'm sorry, not Methuselah. I was thinking of Melchizedek. Uh, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Lot, Lot's wife. Jesus teaches an important lesson about Lot's wife. Uh, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, the 12, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes. And uh, Joseph in particular, uh, very important. There's examples for us of significant, in, in, in both in being good characters to follow and, and bad examples to learn from. So all, all these important characters introduced in the book of Genesis. Approach that I plan to use as we go through the book of Genesis, uh, first and foremost is understand that this is the very word of God. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit, as Peter and Paul both said. And to have the same attitude that Jesus had in John chapter 5 when he quoted from the Psalms, when he said, and the scriptures cannot be broken. Mm -hmm. Jesus' attitude, my attitude towards the Old Testament, I want to be exactly the same as Jesus, that the scriptures can't be broken. He put full reliance and confidence on the Word of God, on the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, I'm an inquisitive person. I have lots and lots of questions, and some of them I'm able to answer, and then some of them I'm, they're still open-ended questions I haven't answered yet. So as I'm studying the text, I ask a lot of questions, and then I have to look into the Scriptures to try to find the answers to the questions. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. And uh, so uh, uh, we, we will we'll ask some tough questions and then try to find the answers or possible answers. <clears throat> uh, the other thing is I want to take a look, first of all, to understand the, the scriptures in context. And then after we get the basic storyline to take a look at, is there anything that Jesus, the apostles, the other you know, New Testament writers uh, are there any points that they make from these stories that we need to, to think about? Uh, are there any moral lessons for us? Also, I, I, I'm a, a curious person. Uh, what was the church like in the beginning? And uh, I was, when I first uh, came to, to, uh, uh, to, to church with, with a large church group, they said, we want to be just like the church is in the first century, just like the church was in the beginning. I said, I said that's, that's a great idea, but I want to know what did the church believe in the beginning? So uh, sometimes I'll introduce uh, observations or comments from early Christian writers from the, 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 the first, second, third century uh, who were a little closer to the source. <clears throat> um, in some cases, they knew the apostles or descendants of the apostles. Their writings are not inspired, but I'll throw that out for, for your consideration and for mine. And then as we're, we're reading through Genesis and anything in the Old Testament, I always want to know, are there any prophecies there? Are there any foreshadowings of Christ or the gospel that are included in what we're reading that go beyond the, what's on the surface? <clears throat> First question, who wrote Genesis? Who's the author of Genesis? Now, obviously, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so in one sense, it really doesn't matter who wrote it. I remember when I was, I was teaching uh, this uh, book of Genesis in Hungary, and I asked the question, and of course, it's being translated into Hungarian, I asked the question, who wrote the book of Genesis? And I got a bunch of strange stares from people 
when I asked the question, I thought, did I do something wrong? Is my hair messed up or what's wrong? <laughs> the, the problem is in a Hungarian, Genesis is called First Moses. There's First, Second, Third, and Fourth oh. Moses. So it's kind of like asking who's buried in Grant's tomb. Well, <laughs> one of those questions. So uh, <clears throat> Hungarians don't worry about that. They know that it was, that it was Moses because that's the way their book is titled. But uh, there are references throughout the New Testament to the five books of Moses as the law of Moses, or sometimes it's just referred to as Moses. When Jesus is talking to the two on the road to Emmaus, he says, he, he opens the scriptures, they look at Moses and the prophets. So it's just referred to as Moses. Um, in John 7, Jesus says, Moses gave you circumcision. Well, circumcision is in Genesis chapter 17. So Jesus' attitude also there clearly is that this comes from Moses, from the law of Moses, the book of Moses. Uh, many other examples throughout the New Testament to the Mosaic authorship of the first five books. So uh, I don't need to go there. Moses lived about 1,400 years before the time of Christ. So we're looking at scriptures that were written about 3,500 years ago. So there's, this is pretty, pretty old material. Uh, translations that I will be using, I use the New King James uh, quite a bit in my own study. I'm also, for Old Testament passages, I'll also sometimes use the, the, the uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. The reason I like that is because when Jesus... And the apostles and the New Testament writers are quoting from the Old Testament. That's almost always the version that they use. So it lines up better. So I, 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 will, I will refer to that as well. Also, the early Christians, first few hundred years, the church, that's generally what the church used for their, their Old Testament as well. So I'll look at the, at the uh, I'll read the New King James, and, and then for some cases we'll take a look at what the Septuagint says for Old Testament passages as well. So... Septuagint was translated about 200, 250 years before the time of Christ. A very highly respected translation. It was also it was translated by the Jews, so this is also predates Christ uh, by, by a couple hundred years. So this wasn't something that the Christians could have tampered with. Uh, let's start off reading Genesis chapter 1, the first five verses. There's a, there's a ton in there. And I'm going to read from the New King James. And then we have a few different translations in the room here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So there was evening and morning were the first day. Um, the Septuagint, Genesis 1-2, it, it says here in, the, in the, uh, the New King James, the earth was without form and void. And the Septuagint, it says it was invisible and unfinished. So uh, uh, that's that's the... The creation account of the first day. Now, 
just being ruthlessly logical here. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm an engineer, so this goes with the territory is that we're trained to think very logically and systematically in engineering. Um, where did the universe come from? I can think of three possible answers when, when, when looking at that. Where did the universe come from? Where did an orderly functioning universe come from? One possibility, just, just thinking logically, what are all the possibilities, and then we'll, well, we'll drill down. That the universe created itself. Okay, yeah, one possibility is the universe created itself. It just arose from nothing and created itself out of nowhere at some point in time by completely by chance, no design. So the universe created itself as one possibility. Another possibility is that the universe just always existed. Didn't have a beginning. It just has always been here from eternity. That the, the, the physical universe uh, uh, was always here. And the third one is it was designed or created by a creator at some point in time. Now, maybe there's a fourth possibility, but I've never been able to come up with that. So always existed means basically created itself. It always existed. Uh, or, or it was designed by a designer. How do you get a functioning, orderly design universe. Uh, I want to give you a, an example that, uh, that, that this is the way I look at it as, as an engineer. An engineer, um, my primary field of engineering is design. So I will design, in my case, I'll design water treatment plants, I'll design wastewater treatment plants, pumping stations, but I'm always designing things. Um, and, then, and then after we build them, I find out, unfortunately, what I missed and what I overlooked and what I got wrong. This is the tough thing about being an engineer. You design something, put it down on paper, they build it, and you find out all the things that you, that you, that you missed in the process. It's a very humbling profession mm. for that reason. Uh, Chris is a is in the construction business, and I'm sure you have the same thing. You you, you as you you have a, you have great plans, you have great designs. You start putting it together and realize all the things that you that you missed in the course of design. So, <clears throat> I want to imagine you're walking through the woods. This is the Middlesex Fells, big big woods right near here. Uh, there, there, you and two friends are three of you walking through the woods, and you look down and you see. A wristwatch. It's a perfect wristwatch. Maybe it's a, a Bulova wristwatch or some, it says Bulova or might say Swiss made on it. It's got a nice crystal on the front. It's got the 12, 12 numerals around it. It's ticking and the hands are moving around. And, and the three of you strike up a question among yourselves. Say, wow, I wonder where this watch came from sitting here in the midst of the woods. And the first person says, I know, it was always here. From the beginning of time, I bet that this watch was always right here. And, and we just happened to stumble on it. But it's always been here. And, and then the second one says, look, that's ridiculous. The watch is ticking. If it was always here, the battery would have run down. It would have run out by now. So it couldn't have always been here. He says, no, no, that's ridiculous. I think it just happened by chance. I think what happened was that one day lightning struck and there was some sand. 
and it immediately turned it into glass. Okay, and then a mole was digging and, 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 and found a piece of, of iron ore and brought it up, and then there was a fire, and that turned it into steel, and, and then, you know, then, then the chipmunks did this, and the squirrels did that, and, and, and then the wind blew, and, and, and it just formed by accident, okay? This business about it always existed is ridiculous. This is a much more plausible theory, is that it just, it just, it came into being by accident. And then the third person, hopefully you, finally speaks up at the end and says, look, you're crazy. You're both out of your mind. You're fools. Although we can't see the designer who designed this watch, you can tell by looking at it, there's clear evidence that someone with intelligence designed it and constructed it and wound it up at some point in time, even though we can't see the person who did that. We can't see the manufacturer or the owner of the watch. It's obvious from looking at it. Okay, That's the way we go through life. You walk down the street here, and you're looking at the houses. Now, the house might have been built 100 years ago, but you don't question, did someone build this house or did it just spontaneously appear or was it always there? You know that these the houses in this neighborhood, even if you don't see who built, the person who built it, it's obvious from the design. Now, there's a, there's a quote that uh, puts it more elegantly than I just did. From uh, Theophilus, he was a, a bishop in, in Antioch in Syria, and it's a letter to Autolycus, which is written around the year 180 A.D. This is Anonycine Fathers, Volume 2, page 90. <clears throat> Talking about this very principle, he says, Any person who sees a ship on the sea, rigged and in sail, and heading for the harbor, will no doubt infer that there is a pilot in her, who is steering her? Likewise, we must perceive that God is the pilot of the whole universe, although he is not visible to the eyes of flesh, for he is incomprehensible. So you can just imagine that. You, see, you, you can see the ship, even though you can't see the pilot, you can tell by looking at it that there's a design, there's a plan, there's someone steering the ship here. It's the same thing with the universe. Let's turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of the God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The creation, the order of the universe, testifies to the designer in all languages at all times, day and night. In Romans chapter 1, Paul makes the same argument starting in verse 18. And he talks about the decline, this, the moral decline of mankind. 
And he says that God's nature is manifest from observing his creation. That the moral degradation of the human race begins with people suppressing the truth about God's existence. They deny the existence of God. They reject the lie for a truth and it leads them into idolatry, into worshiping created things rather than the creator, and ultimately leads to a complete moral breakdown, leading to immorality, violence, murder, envy, people being unloving, unforgiving, and, 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 uh, and unmerciful. And Paul makes the point in Romans chapter 1, we have to worship the creator, not created things. I like the way Clement of Alexandria put it. You know, here we are in Boston. There are a lot of new agers here in New England. They're basically, it's a return to, it's nothing new about it. It's, it's, it's a very old religion of pantheism, of worshiping the creation, worshiping Mother Nature instead of the creator of the universe. I like what Clement of Alexandria said. He lived, uh, he wrote about the year 200 A.D., He said, I'm in the habit of walking on the earth, not worshiping it. And he really really took the gloves off when he was talking about idolatry, people who take stones out of the earth and make statues out of it. He says, I think the pigeons have the right idea. They sit on the the statues and they void their excrement on it. He said, that's about that. That's the right attitude towards idolatry. So... um, God created the universe and said that it was good. And he created it for mankind. We are entrusted with taking care of it. It didn't create us, and we don't worship it. Now, why is this important? I think there there are two reasons to understand God God is the creator of the universe. Two particular reasons why it's important for us us to really... Uh, grasps the significance of this to very practical reasons. One is evangelism. Here we are in Boston. Of all the places in the New Testament that remind me of Boston, Athens, Athens comes, comes up first on the list. Athens was a center of learning and education. Uh, there were a lot of skeptics out there, a lot of philosophical people. It was a center of learning, a cosmopolitan city, and some people are interested in the truth, but a lot of people are just skeptics and like to talk. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Let's let's see how Paul reached out to the philosophically oriented people in Athens, who looked down on him as a barbarian. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be proclaiming of foreign gods, because he's preached to them, Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. 
For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I passed through and considered the objects and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundary of their dwellings. So they should seek the Lord, and the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by the art of man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. So, when Paul is reaching out to the philosophically minded people in Athens, he starts by going back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. He says, there's one God who made the world and everything in it. He gave us life. He made all men from one man. He's not distant and far away. And we are his offspring, and we are here. We've been created to seek him and to find him. And not recognizing the divine nature is ignorance, which God overlooked in past, but now he's calling everyone everywhere to repent. So, reaching out to intellectually, philosophically minded people, Let's start, we can start where Paul did, which is why we're here, answering the question, where did the universe come, why are we here, what's it all about? Going right back to the first principles. Another reason, a second reason why it's really important for us to grasp the significance of this is because it gives us humility like nothing else. In Job 38... When Job is at the end of his rope, he's lost his family, he's lost his wealth, his possessions, he's lost his health, and his wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? And his friends say, look, you must have done something wrong. Job defends his life before God. And talks about the kind of life that he lived in the man that he was. And after defending himself, God finally speaks in Job 38, starting in verse 1. Let's turn there. This is a good one. When, you, when, you, when, you, when you're tempted to question God, why things are going the way they're going in life, 
Turn to this scripture, Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God reminds Job, the most righteous man on the face of the earth, that God said to Satan, there's no one on earth like this man who's, who's blameless and upright. And God smacks Job down and says, where were you? Who are you to question me? Where were you when I created the universe? And Job's response is, I repent in dust and ashes. I, 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 have, I have nothing to say. That silenced him. I'm also reminded the first verse in the Bible that I memorized on my own was in Romans chapter 9 and verse 20. Uh, where it says, uh, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? I think I learned it in the NIV. Why did you make me this way? Reminds me of Jeremiah 18 that God is the potter. We are the clay. Who are we to challenge the creator of the universe who spoke everything seen and unseen into existence from nothing. It's a good place to remind me, uh, just like Abraham said, who am I to bother you? I'm just dust and ashes when he, when he questioned God. Psalm 14, verse 1, very famous passage says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, why are there so many fools in the world? Why are there so many really intelligent people that otherwise intelligent that God says are fools? I think there's two reasons. One reason, this goes back to a very old reason, but I still run into it today all the time. Uh, even, even great famous philosopher like Epicurus uh, you know, talk about the Epicurean, uh, the disciples of Epicurus, the Epicurean philosophers back in Acts 17. They're, they're with us today who look out and see suffering and injustice in the world that they can't explain. Why is it that righteous people are suffering? Why is it that the, the unrighteous are, are prospering? And they look and they draw a wrong conclusion, which is the basis for everything wrong following. The wrong conclusion that they draw is there can't possibly be a good God. There can't be a providence who created all this for a purpose because I see no purpose in it. The problem is they don't see Satan and his role in it. They're missing part of the story, so they get it all wrong. Starting with a wrong assumption, Epicurus started off and said his conclusion was, obviously there can't be a God. Obviously there can't be an afterlife. There's no life after death, unlike Plato, who believed that there was a creator and that there was life after death. Therefore, Epicurus said the goal in life is nothing more than to maximize pleasure. That's it. That's all we're here for, to maximize pleasure. 
A lot of people live in that way today. That's what they're here for, to maximize pleasure. And Epicurus says it doesn't mean we're going to go into a drunken bender or we're going to get involved in, in, in completely off the deep end uh, uh, sexual immorality because he says you feel bad the day after. So let's, let's rein it in and just try to steer a course that maximizes pleasure and enjoyment in this life. By, by, by. That's, that's the highest value. Uh, a lot of people live that way, even, uh, sadly, a lot of Christians live that way, that they believe that the purpose of life is to maximize pleasure and comfort. Uh, Paul confronts this thinking head-on in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 19, where he says, If only for this life we have hope, we are of all men the most pitiable. So the first reason is people, people start off on the wrong foundation, believing that there's no God because they can't explain things that they see. The second reason people don't want to believe in God, and I think this is the biggest one, to be honest with you, is they don't want to repent. In Acts 17, Paul called the unbelieving people mm-hmm. to repentance at the close of his first short speech. Jesus in John 3.19 says, this is the verdict. This is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Clement of Alexandria rebuked the unbelieving philosophers of his day, saying, you disbelieve everything that you may indulge in your passions. That you believe in idols because you have a craving after their licentiousness, but you disbelieve God because you can't bear to live a life of self-restraint. It's the same thing today. People can't explain tough things that they go through or experience in life, and so they they reject the existence of God, the things that they see around them or things that they've experienced, or they just don't want to give up sin. That's what it comes down to. Why are there so many atheists in the world and agnostics? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Read the rest of the creation account. Starting in verse 6, we're going to read uh, from there through the beginning of chapter 2. So it's a long passage. Previously read the account of the first day. In in, uh, verse 6, it says, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide waters from the waters. God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields the seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. 
Let them be for the lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light to the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. So the evening and morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Verse 24, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle and the creeping things and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of the earth, and every tree who yields, uh, whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food, also to every beast of the earth, every bird of the air, and everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts then were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So there's an orderly creation. The process is described over seven days. Just a short recap. Day one, you have light is created. Let there be light. We have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, and it says we have evening and morning the first day. The second day is the firmament, which sounds like heaven or sky to me from context. The third day, dry land appears in the midst of the water, and you have plants and trees. The fourth day, the sun, the moon, and the stars. The fifth day, the creatures in the water and the birds. And then the seventh day, the land animals and humans. So, I'm sorry, the sixth day is the land animals and humans. And the seventh day, God rests from his creation. So, seven days. Um, boy, do I have a lot of questions about, about this, this passage here. This, this passage we just went over. This is a whole lot of questions and I'll throw out the questions that come to mind for me when I read this account. Uh, first question was, uh, this may, and some of these may sound like dumb questions to you, but these are, these are the questions I have. So it says, 
there's evening and morning the first day, but the sun wasn't made until the fourth day. So I'm, I'm just left wondering, well, how does, that, how, does that, how does that work out? I believe it's true, but I'm having a hard time understanding that. The second thing is, it says seven days. Is this a literal seven 24-hour days, or, or do we understand that differently? I've heard, I've heard uh, uh, different explanations. Literal seven 24-hour days. It's seven periods of time that aren't necessarily 24 hours, or that it's, it's to be intended to be truth expressed figuratively. So I've heard those three explanations. That's second question, what do we do with the seven days? Third question I have is, why seven? Okay, why? God could create the whole thing in, in one instant. Why seven? Why the number seven? Why not three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Or why not one? Because there's only one God. If God wanted to create the world with people in it, if that was his goal, why did he do it over, over seven? So most people are thinking, I'm going in the opposite direction. Most people think, oh, you know, it's millions of years, blah, blah. I'm, I'm thinking, wait a minute, God, God created all this. Why didn't he just do it instantaneously? Um, and, and why the number seven? And then another question I have is it says God rested on the seventh day. Now, God's the creator of the universe. He speaks the universe out of nothing. It's not, okay, I'm just trying to imagine this in my own very limited mind. Now, I know from Isaiah chapter 40, it says that God neither hungers nor does he become weary. So it's not like God worked the first day, worked, worked six days, and then he needed to take a break and lie down on a hammock and just because he's exhausted after the first six days. So why does it mention that? Why doesn't it just say God created the world in six days and then he was done with it? Why does it say he created the world in six days and then he rested on the seventh day? Why is creation put in the context of seven days? And why does it make a point of saying that God rested? I mean, since the sixth day... The creation was basically finished, but there's a point that there's, it's in there for some reason. So, uh, uh, and then the last question I have is it says in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. So there's only one God. So who's he talking to when he said, let us make man in our image? What's that all about? Is that just a construction, a figure of speech, or is there something else that's going on there? So these are questions, as I read the text, that I've got to wrestle with. And, and maybe some, you've wrestled with some of the same questions. Maybe you've, you've settled some of these in your own mind. So those are things that, that, I, um, that, that I have. I just, I've, I've got lots of questions. I've got full of questions. Okay. Uh, I remember teaching this class once to a group of students in Boston. I said, let me just ask the question by a show of hands. We're not going to do it in the room here. I said, how many people believe it was literal seven, 24, uh, seven, seven days? How many people believe it was seven longer periods of time? And how many people believe it was a figurative account where God is expressing truth that he created the world? Uh, and I remember these are all people attending the same church. It was one-third in each of the groups. So, and I think each of the thirds was shocked at the other, the other people that didn't believe the same thing that they did. One of the things that, that I'm always trying to figure out is, 
I believe everything in the Bible is true. What's intended to be taken literally? What's intended to be taken figuratively? That's the question, okay? Uh, and people are constantly getting faked out on both sides in the scriptures. Jesus says, destroy this temple and I rebuild it in three days. And everybody assumes he's taking it literally. He's using it figuratively. Uh, Lazarus, they say Lazarus is sick. And, and uh, Jesus says, Lazarus is sleeping. This is in, in the Gospel of John. He says, Lazarus is sleeping. Let's go wake him up. Okay. He's speaking. They're saying, no, no. If he's sleeping, let's let him sleep. That's good for him. He's sick. He says, but he's, he's speaking figuratively about death. On the other hand, it goes the other way too. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says, In the future, God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers, and you must do everything he tells you. We talked about this last week. Everybody took it figuratively. Oh, God will raise somebody up. Peter explains in Acts 3, No, he meant it literally. God just did raise him up. So, it goes both ways. What's figurative and what's literal in the scriptures? I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. I'm just throwing it out there. It's, I, I totally believe. Now, it takes, it is no stretch of faith for me to believe that God who cr- created the universe did it in seven days. It's, it's no test of my faith at all. God certainly could have done that. And people say, well, what about this evidence of this, that, and, and the other thing? So, well, if God cre- when God created Adam, he created all men from one man. When God created the first man, he didn't create him as a baby who had to be nursed by somebody. He created him, obviously, as someone who was an adult. So God can create things with an apparent age. If God created a tree that was, uh, you know, 12 inches in diameter five minutes ago, and a scientist comes and, 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 and takes a boring through the tree and says, well, there, there, are, there are 20 rings here, so this 20, the tree is 20 years old. Well, is the tree 20 years old or is it five minutes old? God created five minutes beforehand. God can create things with apparent age. So it doesn't... It doesn't stretch my faith to say God could have created the universe. I mean, God raises the dead. He creates the universe from nothing. Creating things in a particular order in seven days, in, in seven day period of time, does not, does not challenge my faith because I know who God is. I understand who God is. God can do anything. Nothing's impossible for God. I, I'm just curious. I, 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 so I go back and say, okay, what did the Christians in the beginning, the people who knew the apostles, and, and, and how did they... For the, for the first few hundred years of the church, how did they take the seven days? Now, most of them took it as a literal seven days, just like, like our days. Uh, but not all of them. Uh, Justin Martyr, uh, I thought there was, this is really interesting. Justin Martyr, who's very orthodox, very hard-line about inspiration of Scripture, he said, hey, with God, it's, the Scriptures say that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He says... It very well could be that he did it in seven 1,000-year periods. That's the way he looked at it. Now, can I, can I throw stones at that? Well, who said a day is like a 1,000 years, 1,000 years like a day? Okay, where, where do you find that in the Scripture? Well, most people would think it's in 2 Peter. It's in 2, 2 Peter chapter 3. God says, talking about God's not slow in judgment with God. A day is like a 1,000 years, 1,000 years like a day. But actually... 
It goes back to Psalm 90, which is the one psalm that's attributed to Moses, the author of Genesis. Uh, in Psalm 90 and verse 4, he says basically the same thing. He talks about uh, you know, a thousand years or like, a, like a, 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 I think he says a watch in the night or just, just like nothing. For, God, for God's sense of timing is different than ours. So uh, is Justin Martyr right? I don't know, but he wasn't dogmatic about it. He says, you know, this is this is my own personal conviction. It wasn't a dividing point in the early church. There were different different points of view about that. Um, so I'll just I'll just leave it there. And I'm familiar with the arguments on, on different different sides that the people people take, but that, that's that's beyond the, the point of this particular class. The, the next question is why seven? Why couldn't God get it all done in one shot? There's got to be some reason why, or why not three, or why doesn't he just say I did it in six days and that was the end of it? Uh, the Genesis account is teaching us something that's very valuable in the rest of scriptures. Numbers have significance. The number of 40 is associated with trial, suffering, something you've got to persevere. It's 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus, 40 days, 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, uh, the, the 40, uh, 40, rain for 40 days and 40 nights in, in, in the story of Noah's Ark. So number 40 has a special significance associated to me with suffering, trial, challenge. Number seven, introduced here, is with completion, perfection. Um, the, uh, the, the classic example to me is in the story of the fall of Jericho, which I think is foreshadowing final judgment on the earth. The righteous few are saved. Rahab and her household, Scarlet Cord, city is destroyed. And there's seven all over that story. It says you march around the city for seven days, and on the seventh day you march around seven times and you blow the trumpets. And there's seven all over the story because seven, I believe the number seven has significance Beyond, which is introduced in the book of Genesis about completion or finality because the world is created in seven days. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, it talks about the significance. It says that we are, we have not yet reached the seventh day. We are to be working now. The seven days, work, 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 rest at the last day. And the point he's making Hebrews 4 is we're, we're not, we haven't reached the seventh day yet. This is not yet the time for rest in life. We are to work, and then we will enjoy the Sabbath rest at the end of our lives, not now. Uh, so why does it say that God rested on the seventh day? As I mentioned before, in Isaiah 40, God doesn't get hungry. He doesn't get weary. He wasn't tired out after the first six days. Uh, you know, I think I'll, I'll, throw, I'll throw out my thought on that, why that's in there. Significance of the seventh day in the New Testament. The seventh day, the Sabbath, was the day that Jesus rested for the entire day in the tomb. He was killed on the day before the Sabbath and then put in the tomb before sundown and then the entire day of the Sabbath, his body rested in peace in the tomb and he rose on the first day of the week. So, it could be that even in the story of the creation, the seventh day being the day of rest, mm. that God is foreshadowing 
what would happen on the seventh day in the future with the burial of Jesus and his spending the entire seventh day at rest before he rose on the, on the first day of the week. Just a thought. Last question. Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image. Who is he talking to? Is he talking to the angels? Is he talking to himself? Is he talking like some kings in the royal we? There's only one God, but is he just saying us? Is it a grammatical device that he's using there? Well, John 1 starts off the same way that Genesis 1, in the beginning... It says that God created the heavens and the earth. In, Genesis, in John chapter 1, it says the word, in the beginning, the word, uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And it says in Genesis 1, all things were made through him. So, if all things were made through him, as the word of God who became flesh in the form of Jesus 2,000 years ago, the word of God or the son of God was pre-existing before all ages and the world was made through him. So where was the son of God? Where was the word of God at creation? Word of God was there. Genesis 1-2, it says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So we have the Father, we have the Word of God, and we have the Spirit of God, all present in the creation. Proverbs 8, it talks about the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God, starting in verse 23, it says, it says that the wisdom of God was there involved in the creation of all things. A number of early Christians talk about that passage in, in Proverbs 8 as the wisdom, as God's wisdom being with him, that Jesus, that the pre-existing, uh, 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 Jesus pre-existing as the Son of God before all ages, as the Word of God, was also described as the wisdom of God. And God said that he had his wisdom with him from the beginning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24 identifies Christ as the wisdom of God, which I think points back to Proverbs chapter 8. Other suggestions in the scriptures. In Micah chapter 5, it talks as a prophecy about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, but it says something else that's interesting about Jesus there. It says his goings forth were from the beginning from everlasting. So he would be born in Bethlehem, but his beginnings would be from everlasting. Hebrews chapter 1, it starts off, it says, through him God also made the worlds. And in Colossians chapter 1, it says, by him all things were created that are on heaven and earth, visible and invisible, all things were created through him and for him. So we put all of this together. The Son of God, all things were made through him. He was present at the creation. 
along with is the Word of God, along with the Spirit of God and the Father were present in creation. And when he says, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness, several of the early Christian writers, uh, Irenaeus was one of them, several of the early Christian writers say, this is talking about the word of God who was with the Father in the beginning when he said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. So the early Christians saw that this was talking about the, the, the Son being with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the beginning, which is why he says, let us make, not, not let me make. Okay, so it all fits together. Amen. Uh, we'll stop there, and we'll pick it up in Genesis chapter 2 next lesson. Thank you.